Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come now to worship you and honor you through the teaching of your word. Lord, we just ask for your Holy Spirit to open up the scriptures to your people, even myself, and for him to give me the right words to express the hidden things, the spiritual things, the truth about Christ that we may know and believe and be encouraged in our walk as those who belong to Christ. Lord, we pray for your church again that it would continue to look to Christ for its hope. For when we move away from Christ, we have lost our first love. So we just pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you draw all your people to Christ, that they may glory only in him and what he he has done and is doing for them. Our Lord, we just ask for your blessing this morning. May you teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are going to be in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. But we are going to be all over the map today. We are going to read a lot of scriptures. To support our teaching. Exodus 17, 1 to 7, Moses records and says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The word of the Lord. And for our title for this sermon is called Water from the Rock. Our sermon title is Water from the Rock. And this is a communion sermon, and we love to preach the gospel from different places of the Bible. We love to expound the gospel so that you see that the gospel is not a new message of the New Testament. It's the same old message that God has been preaching right from the beginning. We love to look for Christ in the scriptures and to find him, but we can only find him 
when he reveals himself to us in those passages of scriptures, Christ has to be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Because to find Christ is only the work of God. God alone can reveal Christ. And so when we are reading the Bible, we have to be looking for him. Otherwise, our labor is in vain. Because according to Jesus, the scriptures were written to testify of him. And according to Apostle Paul, what is known about Christ, what is known about Jesus, and the gospel is found in the Holy Scriptures. The scriptures that were written before Jesus came in the flesh. And so he recorded for us in Romans 1, let's go to Romans 1, verses 1, uh, Romans 1, verses 1 to 6. Romans 1, verses 1 to 6. Apostle Paul writes and says, Paul, a born servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So the gospel is the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this gospel of God was promised beforehand through the utterance of the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And this is what it concerns. It concerns his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So the Holy Scriptures concern themselves about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the code of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 4. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 4. The same apostle says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the scriptures. What are these scriptures, Paul? What are these scriptures? Let's hear from Jesus. Luke 24, verses 25 and 20, sorry, Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. And this is the Lord after his resurrection. And he has appeared to his disciples. And he said to them, 
all foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beginning at Moses, beginning from Genesis, he expounded to them the things concerning himself. And so the Old Testament scriptures are they that testified of Christ and that means the proper hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is such a big word, but it just means the science of interpretation, the science of drawing out meaning, the method of interpreting those scriptures. How do we approach those scriptures as to find meaning from them? And so from what we have learned about Jesus, the proper hermeneutic, the proper way to understand the scriptures is to bring Christ and the gospel as the key to open them up for us. The gospel and Christ is the key and the light that shines that we may properly understand and see what those shadows were. So Jesus is the master key. He is the universal key for the scriptures. And if you forget this key, when you are reading the Old Testament, you may open some of the doors with some other lesser keys, but you won't go far. You may open some closet doors and maybe get a bag of Jolly Ranchers, Abriana. And maybe a bag of Doritos, maybe some chips. But you won't be able to open the vaults that have all the riches of Christ. The Old Testament, in its stories, in its events that were recorded, the institutions, the people, the feasts, gave us some pictures, some shadows, some black and white traces of Christ and the gospel. It dropped some breadcrumbs and nuggets that spoke of Christ. They were hinting, they were giving us some knowledge of this one who is called Jesus. But the appearance of Christ was the high definition color picture. If you have been to any electronics store, they now have these new TVs that have 4K definition, high definition. It used to be the highest definition that you could have was 1080p. Now 4K is four times that, the clarity and resolution. Is that clear? It's insane. It's not real. So Christ is the high definition picture of what those things stood for. He is the substance of what those things represented and mean. And so the work of Christ in the New Testament is what gives us the proper theological understanding of what those things stood for. Otherwise, they just remain some kids' bedtime stories, some fables. 
And if we treat the Old Testament as just some interesting stories of God's miraculous power, then I think we miss the point. The spiritual is more real than the physical. The spiritual is more real than the physical because everything began in the spiritual. God is spirit and he pre-existed all things. He existed before all things and all things came from the invisible. So the invisible is more real than the physical. Hebrews 11 verse 3. I'm developing a point. Why we need to read the Old Testament with the spiritual mind of the gospel. Because the gospel is spiritual. Hebrews 11 verse 3. The writer says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. The things that are seen were not made by things that are visible. Romans 1.20 Apostle Paul says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Colossians 1. 16. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Visible and invisible. So God even created some invisible things. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18. Apostle Paul says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. The invisible things are eternal. The unseen things, the spiritual, are more real than those things that we see. And since we have the Holy Spirit illumination and commentary of those things in the New Testament, we have very good grounds to stand on as we go and relook at those stories with clear and sound gospel principles and try to extract the gospel from them. The gospel is God's message. That's God's interest. And since God is spirit, the gospel by default is a spiritual message. Jesus Christ and the gospel are they that make the unseen Real to us. He guides us into the invisible things of God. It's Jesus who guides us into the invisible things of God so much that he would say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. 
So Jesus is the mold into which everything has to fit because all physical and spiritual things, their existence, their purpose, their significance in him or to him, all things are summed up in him. They are fulfilled in him. In him, all things consist and they have their being. If Every Old Testament text was to be expounded. Every one of them was to be expounded in the New Testament. The Bible would be so big, it could not be contained. And even Apostle John records that and says, if we were to record everything that the Lord Jesus Christ did, then it sounds like hyperbole. 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 That John was just blowing up things. But no, John was actually telling the truth that if everything was written, see how many books have been written from this book, the Bible. And people are still writing. And so the Holy Spirit has given us sound principles by which to read the things of God. Jesus Christ and the gospel then is the only sound way To read all of scripture. And that is our method of interpreting the Bible. So if someone were to ask you and say, what is the hermeneutic of your church? We use a gospel-centered hermeneutic. Which means whatever passage of scripture in the Bible, we look for the gospel. We look for Christ. Some passages are more obscure than others. So we are not able to extract Christ from them. But God knows exactly what they stood as far as revealing Christ. But basically that's our hermeneutic. It's a gospel-centered hermeneutic. It's a Christ-centered hermeneutic. And so whether we adopt a literal or spiritual approach, that's going to be determined by the context. If you are reading the epistles, your approach is going to be very, very literal because they are expounding the shadows. The epistles expound the shadows, but the Old Testament is all hidden. And when the Lord came, he was also using a lot of parables. So when you're reading what Jesus says, you're going to have a mixture of the literal and the spiritual. But ultimately, both the literal and the spiritual are spiritual. (laughs) Right? If they are talking about Christ, then they have to be spiritual. And because the gospel is spiritual, we desperately need the Holy Spirit to open both the scriptures and ourselves that we may understand what those things meant or mean. We rely desperately on the Holy Spirit to give us illumination, to shine his light so that we may know what these things are. And that is why after the resurrection, the Lord said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and he is going to reveal all things of mine to you. He has to open the scriptures for us. So in that understanding, we have to understand the proper function of the law of God in the context of salvation. Why did God give the law? Because that's the issue. This is the issue of the gospel. What is the proper function of the law of God in salvation? Because we have people that are playing fast and loose with the law 
of God saying that the believer can do the law or we are saved to do the law or we are saved in Christ but we are saved to go back to Moses. But this is what they do not know or they do not understand. They may have zeal but according to Apostle Paul in Romans 10 there are those who have zeal but not according to knowledge. The law is like an insulated high voltage wires that are on the ground on a wet day after a huge storm and sinners are they who are walking around in the water with no proper shoes oblivious of what is lacking in that water. Do you understand that? The law is like an insulated power lines that have fallen to the ground and the ground is wet. And when the ground is wet and you still have power flowing, guess what? All that water becomes live. It's ready to kill. But people are walking in that water oblivious of what this water can do to them. The law carries a curse. And that's high voltage. And it's high voltage because the curse is an eternal curse. For one who tries to do it, but fails. The law has to be insulated or the power switch has to be turned off. Otherwise, it will kill everyone. And Jesus alone is he who is able to ground safely the power that is in the law. He alone has the power and insulation to hold the cables, the power cables of the law and insulate it and discharge the power that is in the law. So Jesus alone is he who has the power and the ability to remove the power that is in the law. The power to kill and condemn. Because remember what the law is doing. The law was not given to give you life. The law was given to kill you and to condemn you. And so if you have to leave, the law has to be removed in some way. Someone has to be able to touch it. But guess what? Uzzah tried it. And what happened to him? He was electrocuted. And he died on the spot. So the law fries everyone who messes with it. So the law was not given for sinners to earn or maintain salvation by it. But to teach them the proper way, the safe way to approach a holy God. The law was given to show us God's way of salvation. God's own provision of salvation. And so God dramatized Salvation history in the life of his chosen nation, Israel. And so in our story, in Exodus 17, we catch Israel sojourning in the desert, having been set free from their Egyptian slavery through a miraculous deliverance by God himself. A deliverance from slavery. The deliverance of Israel from Egypt was a deliverance from slavery, a slavery which was a type of sin. And this delivery was not done by men with big AK rifles, with tanker trucks, with Humvees and tanks. This is not how God gave deliverance. It came 
through the blood of a lamb that was killed and the blood sprinkled on the doorposts of those that God determined to save. And these who had the blood on their doors were passed over by God's judgment on that night. God saw the blood of the sacrifice that he had commanded, that he had ordered. And this blood is what purchased the freedom and the life of his people from slavery so that they would not suffer the fate of the Egyptians. On this night of judgment, it was so dark with a darkness that could be felt or tied, according to Moses. He said it was so dark that you could actually touch the darkness. You could feel it. But God was still able to see all his people, to see all those who had the blood on their doors through that darkness. The blood was visible to him, though invisible to those who were covered by it. Very important. The blood was still visible in that darkness. It was visible to God, even though it was invisible to those who were covered by it. And so the faith of those who were covered was in that they had the blood on their doors even though they could not see it. And that God was able to see it even in that darkness. So their faith looked outside themselves. They looked to the ability of God to see in the darkness. (laughs) Because if for some reason... God's eyes could not see if for some reason some, there was some dust that night, some dust storm, and somehow God's eyes were blinded, then they're in trouble. So their hope was in that God's eyes could still see through that darkness and pass them over. And that night, they were shaking and some were afraid. And many did not even sleep that night. But their fear did not change the power of the blood to protect. Their fear and even unbelief did not wash off the blood from their doors. Because it was never about them. It was always about the blood. Their faith was in that the blood was sufficient to exchange death for life. And yes, it was enough. And they were delivered, even through the Red Sea. And even now, the faith of the gospel is not that you get a prosperous life and a new kitchen with granite countertops and a car as is being taught. The faith of the gospel is in that the blood of Christ, though invisible to you and I, is still on you. That God still sees it through the darkness of your sin and that it is enough. That is the faith of the gospel. We don't see the blood of Christ, but we trust that it is there. And we trust that it is sufficient. And we trust that God sees it. So when people say, well, my faith is strong. Strong in what? (laughs) What is it strong in? And usually it has nothing to do with the sufficiency of the blood of Christ to redeem them. But the deliverance of, we are building background, we are going to our story. 
It's a good story. It's good theology. There's a lot of good things. Trust me. But the deliverance of Israel from Egypt was not just for history books to be written. It was for the preaching of Christ who is the ultimate Lamb of God who by his blood, his blood sacrifice has made his people visible to God. And not only that, God has passed them over in judgment because he judged them in the death of this sacrifice, Jesus Christ, that he commanded. So Jesus Christ is the sacrifice that God commanded for you. No other sacrifice. It doesn't matter. If the children of Israel had put any other blood other than the blood of the sacrifice that God commanded, that was not going to protect them. They were going to die. You have to be covered by the blood that God has commanded himself. But if there's a picture of deliverance, there has to be also pictures and realities of sin. What are we being delivered from? We are being delivered from the slavery of sin. We have to be delivered from the reality of sin because ultimately the sacrifice was meant to remove, to take away sin, to pay for sin, to expiate, which is to cover sin. And not only that, to propitiate the wrath of God. And in the desert, we see the sin of man rising up against God and over and over. And God having to intervene on behalf of sinners through some means that pictured the gospel. Every time that people got in trouble, God is he who intervened on behalf of his people that he may not destroy them. But every time that he did that, it was always in the context of something that pictured Christ. The people of God have been murmuring against God right from the beginning. They do not trust God. And so God has to teach them to trust him in his provision of salvation. The issue here is provision of salvation. It's not just giving hungry people something to eat. But ultimately, he has to teach them that their true need would only be met in his provision, in his ultimate provision, in his lamp, in his manna, bread from heaven, in his water from a rock, in his raised bronze serpent. See that all those provisions, whenever they happened, guess what? The people were groaning and murmuring and grumbling. And so his people have been complaining and wanting to go back where? To Egypt. They want to go back to Egypt. They never wanted to leave Egypt, right? From the time that Moses showed up. They're like, oh, Moses, we are good here. Even though they were crying out to God for deliverance. God deliver us, but leave us here in Egypt. Listen to Exodus 14, verses 10 to 14. Exodus 14, 10 to 14. Moses says, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, 
Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we taught you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Leave us in our sin, Moses. What's wrong with you? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Numbers 11 verses 4 to 6. Numbers 11, 4 to 6, Moses again says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, They were crying this time. Men and women crying. Who will give us meat to eat? Now it's about meat. We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now, our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. We are tired of this manna, Moses. We want some meat. We want some hamburgers. <laughs> they were crying for steak. Some Egyptian french fries. They miss the restaurants and drive throughs in Egypt. And that, my friends, is what sin does to us. It reminds us of the good old days, the days of our slavery to sin in Egypt, and says this salvation thing is nothing compared to the days of old. Sin rewrites the past and makes it glorious and tries to make your past look so good and better than what it really was that you may be drawn back to the life of slavery. And sin brings selective exposure of the good old days. It doesn't tell the whole story. They never said we were slaves in Egypt. They only talked about the cucumbers and the garlic and the steak. Oh, life was nice. Life was good when we used to kick it. When we used to do our own thing, we surely do miss. Sometimes our sin, the freedom of it. There's some freedom that comes with sin too. The freedom to sin <laughs> and do whatever you want. We miss the ability to kiss someone, even in the public. I'm sure the times that you're thinking, man, thank God I'm a Christian. I was going to say something today. I was going to tell them off. <laughs> but praise God for the Holy Spirit who now constrains us. People just do not walk away from sin. We hold tightly to it, not lightly, because it was part of our being. And we would run back to it if the opportunities were opened. We would run back to sin and embrace it and say, oh, how much I miss you. I missed you. Naturally, you and I will always default to going back to our old sin than away from it. By default, we go back, we don't go away. It's the Lord who pulls us away. 
the only thing holding you and I from going back to Egypt is the faithfulness of God and the Red Sea and not our faithfulness. Because no matter how much they desire to go back to Egypt, guess what? They're still going to have to go through the Red Sea. So they could never go back to Egypt. And so we lie to ourselves and say, remember the fish which we used to eat freely in Egypt. No, we did not eat anything freely in Egypt. We were in slavery in Egypt, making bricks without getting paid. Why? Because sin has you sweating for everything that you do and for no gain. There's no pay. Well, the payout of sin is what? Is death. The payout of sin, the wages of sin is death. And as Apostle Paul was saying in Romans 6.21, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. So staying in Egypt could only have one outcome, death. And so the Holy Spirit tells us that in their sojourn in the desert, on their way to the promised land, they strived with God. They were contending with God. They were groaning and mumbling against God. Here again, Exodus 16, verse 1 to 3. Exodus 16, verses 1 to 3. Moses says, And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, All that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, <laughs> and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It's the same storyline. Moses, you hate us so much. You are putting us on a diet that we don't like. We miss the meat, the pots, pots of meat. Okay, lots of meat. So what is all this saying? If one is to summarize the spiritual condition of the children of Israel in one word, it will be wilderness. Wilderness. They were wilderness dwellers for 40 years. And this wilderness theme is so important to the salvation story that in John chapter 3, when Jesus refers to Moses and the bronze serpent, he said, as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness. Very important language. So they are in the wilderness. Why? Because the wilderness was barren. It was a dry place, purged with little or no water and no food. And that is a picture of the spiritual condition that all men find themselves because of sin. That's the picture. All men are born in the wilderness where there is no water and no food. They are dry. They are at the point of death if God does not do something for them. But then for the children of Israel in that wilderness, 
Remember, these are people who are already in the wilderness. Then God comes and he gives them another burden. He gives them the law to do it or be cursed. So if you can't find food, you can't find water. And on top of that, you are given the burden of the law. What hope do you have? See the story. That's what God is doing. So the law is given in that wilderness to make an accounting of this sin and not to make the sinners better. The law was not given to restrain their sin. The law cannot make better that which is unclean. The law was not given to make these people better. Because even when they had the law, guess what? What they kept doing? They kept breaking it. They kept mumbling and grumbling and complaining and getting in trouble and getting killed. And and the wilderness that they found themselves in was not just called a wilderness. This location that they were in was called the wilderness of salvation. (laughs) The wilderness of grace. The wilderness of mercy. No, it was called the wilderness of sin. And in the wilderness of sin, many things happen to people. Bad things happen to people. People got hungry. They got angry. They got thirsty. They complained. They sinned. And they sinned the more. And they got beaten by fiery serpents. And they died. And you and I were in the wilderness of sin when Christ found us. Doing what? When Christ found us, what were we doing? When God came to the children of Israel, what were they doing? Were they praising God and having fun? No. They were complaining. They were angry at God. They were complaining against Moses, doing whatever was good in their own sight and getting ready to die, if not to go back to Egypt. Exodus 17. Now we come to our text. Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the children of Israel were directed by the same pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire to get on the move for they were following it. They only stayed in a particular place or moved according to the commandment of the Lord. So when the pillars moved, they also moved with the pillars. But when they got camped in Rephidim, which in my reading means resting places, they could not find water to drink. The people were thirsty. And so they looked back to Moses, their leader and mediator before God, and they gave him a good piece of their mind about the state of things and said, therefore, the people contended, that's verse 2, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So they asked Moses for water to drink. And every time things did not work for them, they reminded Moses of how good things 
used to be in Egypt, so as to guilty trip him, and how we are so like them even now. Technology has not made us better, but a lot of people say, "Oh, we are so much better." No, we are not that different. Technology has only given us better and faster opportunities to express, to do, and share our sin. Technology has only expedited the process of sinning. <laughs> but they are disappointed because, you see, they were thinking, okay, God has come to deliver us from slavery. And they are expecting their life to turn around and to get better right away. And they are disappointed. And the Christian life is not any different. Many people get disappointed to find out that real trouble began when they came to Christ. When they thought they have been saved is when real trouble began. And they seem to always be going through dry places. And so because of that, they are tempted to go back to the old days. They reminisce of their Egyptian days. And this is how Joe Austin and company ministries are successful. Because they are built on the promise to take people back to Egypt. To get their cucumbers and their onions and garlic and their steak. Your best life now. And because people want stuff, so they will go everywhere or anywhere where they can get stuff from Egypt. So why do these hirelings have a huge congregation? Because they give them cucumbers. They give them the leeks and the onions. The false gospel. That's the issue. They give them elements of the false gospel. And that is how even people lapse back into their old sins, into drugs, into illicit affairs, because they looked away from Christ and back to Egypt for the things that they used to enjoy, for the cucumbers. And we are all prone to go back to Egypt. We are all prone to want to go back to Egypt. And that is why we have to come and be reminded and say, okay, let's keep moving. We are not going back to Egypt. Let's keep moving. Let's keep marching. But according to Moses, the children of Israel were tempting God. And what that means is they were not trusting in his providence in difficult times. Salvation is a call to hardship. The Christian life is a life of struggle. It has victory, but as we are sejourning in that victory, there's trouble. And the hope that we have as we sejourn is that it all ends well because the Lord overcame the world. So the gospel does this. The gospel wins you and I off from the breast of Egypt. And the winning process can be hard on some days. The winning process of coming out of Egypt to be God's people can be a painful process. And that is why we need exhortation. As long as it is called today, let us not harden our hearts. 
because they can be hardened by sin. And the writer of Hebrews would also say, exhort one another monthly. No, daily. Daily. Why? Because the walk is difficult. We are bound to want to go back and renounce our testimony of the gospel. And so Moses says, do not contend with me. Do not fight against me. I did not bring you here. I am not the one causing this trouble. God is the one who is teaching them. He is the one who is taking them through these places of dryness that he may teach them of his own provision and to humble them. Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 to 5. Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 5. Moses says, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? To humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that men shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. So that is the reason why God is taking them through, because he is testing them, he is teaching them about this one who is coming, Jesus Christ. So that will take us back to Exodus 17, verse 4, where Moses says, So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The people are really upset with Moses, and they are ready to stone him to death. And so Moses cries out to God and says, God, look, your people. What shall I do with these people? It is very hard dealing with sinners. Imagine, Moses had almost one million or more people that he was leading. Even Joe Austin or T.D. Jax could not lead that many. <laughs> sinners do not listen to anyone unless you give them what they want. They have to get what they want. But listen to the response of the Lord to Moses. The Lord says, verse 5, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. God says to Moses, Go before the people and gather to yourself some elders, but in your hand also take with you the rod with which you struck the river Nile and go. What is this now, Lord? What is this about? Listen to what God says. Verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So God was going to go by the elements. He was going to guide them and lead them. And he was going to stand before Moses and Israel on the rock in Horeb. This particular rock in Horeb. 
he was to show them the rock as he showed them Christ when he was born. Remember when Christ was born and the shepherds were sent and they were guided by the star. Okay, listen to what Matthew says. Matthew 2, 9. When they had the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. So the pillar of fire and the pillar of of cloud also came before the rock and stood over where the rock was. It's getting interesting. So God identified the rock that Moses was to strike. It was this one at Horeb and no other place. But what to do with that rock, God? What are we, what was Moses supposed to do with the rock? To strike it with a rod and after which water would come out of it that the people may drink. And this was not just any other rod. This rod is the one that Moses, this is the stuff that Moses had in Egypt. This rod that in Egypt turned water into blood is the same rod that was now striking this rock and causing water to come out. In Egypt, this rod, when it struck, the strike was a strike of death. It was a strike of death and judgment. It was a rod that brought condemnation. It brought the curse of the law because it produced blood. It turned water which used to be usable and fouled it. And it it could not be used. But this same rod on this rock produced water that leads to life. This same rod on this rock produced water that leads to life. What is this rock? And who is this rock? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 to 4. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4. Apostle Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. And that rock was Christ. See that Israel did not find the rock by themselves. God had to direct them to the rock that brings out water. And so there is no sinner who can find Christ by themselves No matter how thirsty they are, no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws them and reveals him to them. John 6.44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the children of Israel could not get to this rock unless God had drawn them, had taken them to that rock. So what has happened? The people are thirsty, they are dying, and they cry out to Moses, and God intervenes, and he gives instruction on how to solve the thirst problem. He preaches the gospel. Moses and the rod represented the law, 
and the rock was Christ. We have already been told that. The rock was Christ. And what they drank was a spiritual drink. Who is Moses? Moses was a Levite. Him and Aaron were brothers. They were sons of Levi. Moses was a Levite and the Levites were the mediators of the law. Moses and Aaron are representatives of the law. They are the mediators of the law. And if the law strikes, if the rod that is in one who mediates the law strikes, guess what? It brings condemnation depending on who is struck. Condemnation or life depending on who is struck. If if the law strikes you, it turns things into blood as happened in Egypt. And that is why God did not say to the rebels, God did not say to Moses, use the rod on those who are rebelling and complain. God could have done that. Moses, for to beat the people, sorry, for to beat the people with the rod would have been an act of condemnation. But if the law hits you, it has to condemn you. No other way in the context of all that is happening. But see what God did. He put something in place of the people to receive the blows for them. He put his own rock to take the beating on behalf of the people. But when this rock was beaten, it did not produce fouled water as in Egypt. It produced water that quenched the thirst of those who were dying or were at the point of death. So then in salvation, we ask and say to people, which water are you drinking? Are you drinking water struck by Moses in Egypt or water from the rock that is Christ? Those are the two options. You can't have both Moses striking water in Egypt and you drinking water from the rock at the same time. You can't do that. It can only be one of the two. Remember the Lord's conversation with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Be going there. The Samaritan woman also drank water from this same rock. She drank water from this same rock. John 4 verses 7 to 15. I'm just going to read through those verses and I'm not going to make much comment on them. John 4 7 to 15. John says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no, have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. 
But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to drop. So the water that came from the rock at Mount Horeb is this same water that springs up to everlasting life. It's coming from the same rock that is Jesus. And Jesus shows up and he talks to the Samaritan woman and claims to still have this water. And it is Jesus alone who gives it. The Lord does not give that kind of water. The rod of Moses could not produce water by itself until it struck the rock. Because the law was not forgiving life or righteousness. The water was not in the rod. The water was in the rock. Life and righteousness are in Christ. So whoever drinks water from from Egypt will thirst again. Whoever wants to bind themselves under the law will continue to thirst again and will die in their sins. So listen to this. How did this water come to flow? How did the water come to flow at Mount Horeb? Galatians 3.13. Galatians 3.13. Apostle Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. The problem that a sinner has is the curse of the law. So the pictures that we have in our story in Exodus, those are pictures of the curse that is on man because they are sinners. The rod of Moses represented the law. It represented the power of the law to strike. To strike and the power to strike was also the curse of the law. So the striking of the rod of Moses represented the condemnation that comes because of the law. And in the transaction that happened between the rod and Christ, the rock, we had the condemnation of Christ because of our sins. But you see, the rock was struck not because of its own sake, not for its own sake. The rock was only struck on account of the people who were supposed to die. So that transaction represented the condemnation of Christ in our place and what became of that transaction. What came out of what happened to Christ as he would die on the cross. By being struck by the law, by the curse of the law, the curse was removed in Christ. And what happened after that, the water of life flowed and abundantly so. So life could only come when this one, who is the rock, has been struck by the rod of the law. So the purpose of the law then was to get water out of the rock, which was Christ. There was no water that would come out if the law would strike you and I. 
if the law of God will strike you and I by ourselves, guess what? There's no water coming out. You and I will remain thirsty. You and I will remain condemned. Salvation only comes from the cross of Christ because on the cross, the rod of Moses meets the rock. On the cross, we see the rod of Moses meeting the rock and the life coming out of that transaction. So Jesus will say, when I have been lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so shall the son of man be lifted up. That those who believe, look to him, who live. How? By drinking the water. But there's more that happened with the rod. Moses and the rock. Hear this. Let's go to Numbers 20. Numbers 20. That's going to be our closing teaching. Numbers 20 verses 1 to 13. We're just going to read through it. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of sin, of Zin, which I believe is sin again, in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die there? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod and water came out abundantly and the congregation and the animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hallowed among them. So the children of Israel are added again. They murmur, they grumble, they complain, they contend against Moses and Aaron, and they go through their routine over and over, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord, why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come out out of Egypt, to bring us to this evil place. It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. And so Moses and Aaron, as their intercessors before God, go again to God and say, Your people are back at it again, Lord. What shall we do? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 8 and 9, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, 
gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. So Moses was again instructed to take the rod and gather the congregation together. But this time around, the instruction was modified. It was a little different. Before, Moses had to strike the rock. But now he has to speak to the rock before the eyes of the congregation. And by just speaking, the rock would yield its water. But Moses did not follow the instructions. This is what he and Aaron did instead. Verse 10 and 11. Listen. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod and water came out abundantly. And the congregation and the animals drank. So Moses and Aaron, they mocked the people. They mocked them. And then they said, look at us, you rebels. We now have the power in ourselves to bring water out of the rock. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? See what they did not say. They did not say, shall God bring water out of this rock for you? Remember who Aaron and Moses are. They are the mediators of the law. They are not the ones who bring out the water. It's God who brings out the water from the rock. And they claim the power to bring water out of the rock. They are claiming power of salvation. The law is claiming power of salvation. And God is not happy. So this is what Moses did. Moses lifted up the rod and struck the rock twice. God did not say strike the rock twice. He said the first time he was to strike the rock one time. The second time, he was only to bring the rod, but only speak to the rock. But he comes and he strikes the rock twice and all hell broke loose. But the water still did come out. But there was a huge, huge, huge problem. Moses had destroyed the typology of salvation. Because if this was not important, God would have said, okay, that's fine. The water still came and the people drank. We are good to go. But listen to God's response, verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So God is not amused by this development so much that he says to Moses and Aaron, You guys are not going into the promised land. You too have to die in the desert with all the generation that came out of Egypt. What is happening here? This has to be something very important to God. This has to be something so big. Moses is God's servant. And he is the one that has been appointed that he should bring God's people into the promised land. But remember who Moses and his rod represent they both represent the law hear me <laughs> this is good Hebrews 7 verse 11 we we'll finish today <laughs> Hebrews 11 uh, sorry Hebrews 7 11 therefore if perfection 
were through the Levitical priesthood, that is the priesthood of Moses and Aaron. For under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? The writer of Hebrews is saying, if perfection could come from Moses, from the law, if perfection could come from the rod, if water that leads to life could come from the rod, then there would not have been need of another priesthood that is according to the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because the law made nothing perfect. And so it could not bring those who were under it into the promised land. Because the promised land was a picture, was a picture or type of salvation. And so this is what God says in the larger context of what is happening. Only those who were 20 and below who were born after the law had been given would enter the promised land. All those who crossed through the Red Sea did not make it into the promised land, including Moses, including Aaron. They did not. Why? Because the law does not bring people into God's promises. The law does not. So Moses could not bring God's people into the promised land. But listen to this, Numbers 14. Numbers 14, 26 to 38. People talk about the age of accountability and say age 20 is the age of accountability. It's because they don't understand what God was teaching here in Numbers. There's nothing called age of accountability. Numbers 14, 26 to 38. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days for each day you shall bear your guilty one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection." I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall be consumed and they shall die. Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive of the men who went up to spy the land. So what is that saying? The law is not of faith, and so the law cannot take you into the promises of God. See that from the congregation that came out of Egypt is Joshua and Caleb. 
And what made Joshua and Caleb different from others? It was faith. It was faith. So if one has to enter into the promised land, they can only go in there by faith and not by the works of the law. Okay? So, the generation of Israel, 20 and up, together with Moses and Aaron, the mediators of the law, did not get into the promised land because the law does not save. The law is not for perfection, according to the right of Hebrews. The law is not for righteousness. The law is not for life. The law is not for sanctification. And so God has sovereignly used the rebellion of his people, including the anger of Moses, to preach Christ and his gospel, to teach that the rock can only be smitten once, not twice, by the curse of the law. Do you see that? The rock can only be smitten once, not twice. Christ can only be crucified one time and not two times because by his one sacrifice, he perfected forever those that are sanctified. By that one strike on the cross, that was enough for our salvation. Hebrews 6, 4 and Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Hebrews 6, the writer of Hebrews says, of those who fall away, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So the one who rejects the testimony of the gospel, God is saying, if they reject this testimony, then they need another Christ to be crucified. But it is impossible. Because God only has one sacrifice and it has already been sacrificed. So once Christ has been crucified, the law has done its work. And those who are thirsty in the wilderness do not bring their own rods to try and beat Christ up again that life and water may come out of the rock. They now do what? Speak to the rock. God says to Moses, you go to the rock and you speak to it and salvation will happen. We are not under the law. To go back to the law is to try and strike Christ again. The command of the gospel is we now speak to the rock that has already been struck. Listen to this, Romans 10, and that will be, we'll finish Romans 10 and quotation from Isaiah. Romans 10, now we speak to the rock. Hear this. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Salvation is now near. It's near you. It's in your mouth. You speak it. You confess it. You speak to the rock, but you do not try to beat the rock with the rod of Moses. 
God will be very upset. And many preachers are preaching a gospel that says the believer still has to go to Horeb and strike the rock with Moses' rod and putting them under the yoke of the law that they may be saved. And that is not good teaching and that's the false gospel. The true gospel is that Christ was already struck by God's rod and the waters of salvation flowed out of his blood according to Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So God was satisfied with how he struck Christ with the rod of his law. He saw the labor of his soul and was satisfied. And so he says, now come and drink freely. Come and drink the water of life, hewn out of the stone, hewn out of the rock. And this, my friends, is the mystery of the water out of the rock. So as we commemorate the Lord's table, we remember the finished work of Christ. And how by his death on the cross, by him being struck by the rod of Moses, he satisfied the law for us. And now by faith, we let go of Moses' rod and speak to him and the waters of salvation will come out freely and abundantly. That's the gospel. That's our message. We are done. Praise the Lord. Amen.